Hi, I'm David Kittrich, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And I am so thrilled to present one of my favorite parts of the Outcast season, Highlights from Outfest, where I get to talk to filmmakers who had worked featured in the Outfest Film Festival this year. The Outfest LA Film Festival is one of the largest film festivals in North America. It runs every summer here in Los Angeles, and it is so much fun. And this year, in 2021, there were over 170 LGBTQ films screened in person and also with a digital component. And for our last three episodes of season two of The Outcast, we highlight six films from Outfest and talk with their creators. And joining me to kick off this first episode of the series is Mike Dockerty, Director of Festival Programming for Outfest Los Angeles. Hello, Mike. Hello. This was. How are you? Oh, I'm. <laughs> Or you I, is the better question. There was a, I don't know. There was a pause there. I thought it was like, do I have to expand on that? Like, <laughs> well, how are you? How are you doing? This was a really like interesting and kind of challenging year. Yeah, I mean, our our priority was always that anybody attending would feel safe and would be able to celebrate, knowing that they were that we were keeping their safety in mind. Um, I mean, yeah, these past two years planning festivals has always just been kind of like. A marathon just and like as, <laughs> as you as you get to the water tables like the water table is like the new information you have to pour over your head um, about like okay now we have to deal with now we have to deal with this um but yeah i mean we i mean our our team is incredibly adaptable we all have experience you know working festivals under constraints and under you know budget limitations and under you yeah, know but this one took the cake i think so this yeah one, absolutely one... but but we we adapted pretty well and we we brought the core team in to do vaccination checks and you know the mask mandate was law by that time in LA so we made sure everybody was wearing their masks indoors um, and it seemed to go off without a hitch I mean everybody who attended felt really safe and everybody was very enthusiastic in the theaters and you know it was it felt different from a normal year of course it it kind of otherworldly in a sense but um it's kind of we've also adjusted to the world we're in so yeah um for for the COVID era i think it went as well as any festival could have possibly gone well just as somebody who did attend uh, several live events and live live screenings i did feel comfortable and and there Mm -hmm. were people of course checking vaccination status at the door and you know people wore masks in the theater it was it was just a lovely communal experience i don't know if i really understood how much i missed that kind of thing until I was there in a room at DGA one crowded waiting to see a movie and everybody was there and everybody was like, just so pulling for Outfest and pulling for the movie and pulling for each other. And it was, it was just a lovely experience. And I just can't congratulate you and the team enough because I think what you did this year, even more than last year was just miraculous. Thank you for that. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, in the lead up to it, it was, you know, a bunch of nerves about are people going to come or the filmmakers going to be upset if not enough people come. Right. And, you know, all of those like procedural worries. And then it like didn't leave me enough time to think about, you know, what I really got into this for, which was to create these wonderful communal experiences and to see the filmmaker have one of the best days of their lives screening. And almost every filmmaker told us that it was their first time seeing the film in a theater with an audience and it was amazing and and the audiences were just overjoyed to be there and and really enjoying the lineup which you know is 
good for me to hear as well. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it, I, I was ultimately really happy with what went down. So the first filmmakers I spoke with were the team from The Sixth Reel. Mike, tell us about how this movie came to have its world premiere as a centerpiece selection at Outfest. Um, because I was searching IMDb. Like, this is, <laughs> this is, this is like the kind of, yeah. This is the kind of programming story I love where it's like, you know, you, you get thousand submissions and you're soliciting from sales agents and producers and getting all of the the great titles that have been around for the past year and then one day you're kind of just searching your your queer heroes online you're like oh charles bush has a new movie in the works like i wonder what's going on with that and um and i i looked up the you know the producing team and it happened to be um the last project that ash christian who passed away last year was working on and ash had had many many films at the festival so i reached out to the producer at, at the company that Ash left behind, uh, who looped me into the producer, Jamie Buckner, who was like, oh, yeah, we're going to have something to see very shortly. And, you know, Outfest is a really cool idea for us because, you know, we played you know, the Sundances and the Tribecas and, we're, and they're a great experience. But it's like Outfest would be a great place to really celebrate Charles's work and like yeah. really be the central focus. And we did make it a centerpiece screening just because it was such a... a a wildly fun movie and and just amazing that like all of this came together so perfectly it was like you know the kind of stroke of luck that we haven't seen in the past two years so like <laughs> oh i just blindly reached out to a film that would be amazing to world premiere and they're saying yes like without much difficulty that's that's incredible and charles bush of course is a legend i mean if, you, if you're no. not familiar with charles bush i mean you can go rent die mommy die or psycho beach party or mm-hmm. i mean most of charles's work actually is in the theater right. um, he's had so many different shows and he wrote uh, the Tony Award-winning Tale of the, the Allergist's Wife, which he was not in. But for movies, I remember being at Sundance uh, in 2003, seeing Die, Mommy, Die for the first time. And the entire theater was, was like, laughing hysterically. And I have to say, Sixth Reel, it was a similar experience. I think everybody was there to laugh, and it was just a lovely movie that everybody just had a blast in. Yeah, and what was really cool about it was that it turned out to be about like this communal group of people who had a shared love of film to kind of a, an intense degree um, that were all kind of ultimately coming together to share in that love. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, we can do that in the uh, return to in-person screenings at Outfest. Like what, what, a, what a nice thematic marriage right there. <laughs> yeah, it, it was absolutely perfect. And yeah. the next filmmaker we talked to is Lorden Hathaway uh, with her debut feature, The Novice. Now, this is a very arresting movie. Mm-hmm. Tell us about it. Yeah, this was one uh, one of the first ones I really saw as we started the programming process because it, it world premiered at Tribeca and I got to take an early look at it before that festival. It won and an award there, right? Just, it won three awards there. It won yeah. like Best U.S. Narrative Feature, Best best lead actress and best cinematography all well deserved yeah the script for the novice went through outfest screenwriting lab in 2018 lauren was a screenwriting fellow there uh which is just i mean i have no other story there other than feather and outfest cap you know we support the great <laughs> artists um, yeah, it's important to, to 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 talk about the screenwriting lab because it's one of the many programs that outfest has and it does bear fruit and this is a perfect example yeah. of that this is a runaway festival hit and it's going to get released yeah, yeah, IFC picked it up, and it's it's just phenomenal filmmaking. From like, I I remember in the Q and A that we had in person, I was like, you know, I know this is your first film, your first feature, and you're on you know an indie film budget. Obviously, it could not have been easy to make, especially with what's going on in this film. It's for those that don't know, it's set in the world of 
college rowing um, yeah. about a young woman played by Isabel Furman who goes whole hog into her rowing experience to the detriment of her personal health and safety and relationships um, to an obsessive degree. And just what's on screen just feels so fluid and so virtuosic um, from like, it looks like the work of a seasoned filmmaker. And I'm like, you, it, I know there must've been problems, but it looks like you got everything you needed in terms of shooting. It looks like you, you had the film in the cutting room that you wanted. And she was like, Oh, it was a terrible experience <laughs> like shooting the film. Like it was, she was like, I think the first day of shooting, we had three hours, three hours of like sunlight and then the fog rolled in. And then from there it was, <laughs> it was just like, get whatever you can on camera. But it like on screen, it just looks like my God, it, it, it like you, you had, it felt like, you know, the, it's been favorably compared to your black swans and your, and your whiplashes and in whiplash, terms of like, yeah. kind of, uh, which is very apt, but it, it just has. It also has that this great queer element to it, where it's a it's a thing we're seeing a lot nowadays. Where we're finally getting these stories where the the lead character is queer, but that's not what the story is about. It right. just is, right. which is awesome because it opens us up to to seeing ourselves in so many more genres and films that we typically don't take center stage in. It's an amazing film and, and I'm I'm really thrilled that it's going to get out there and Lauren is, I, I can't wait for you to hear the uh, interview because I the interview is already in the can. Um, it's fantastic. She is <laughs> she is <laughs> wonderful. Um, it was a wonderful interview um, and I, again, I can't believe what she was able to get away with on the budget and the schedule that she had. It's just an astonishing film. And just to again shout out Isabel Furman's performance in this film. Is, oh yeah wonderfully incredible like and something she's I was, possessed i mean it's, I know, it's amazing i i only know her from these intense like dark roles like orphan, orphan. And, and hunger games where she's like villainous <laughs> oh, yeah. and she's intense right. and she's like out to do you harm and then you meet her in person and she's the most bubbly like vibrant like <laughs> excitable person who's just like i'm so happy to be here and oh this is great <laughs> like this is so cool yeah after this i think i'd be yeah. i'd be a little bit nervous I, I know she's an actor but it's just it'd just be like oh yeah, uh, I, yeah. You know, what's gonna happen yeah. now um, anyway, and she's going not- places yeah. she's going places that's what I said <laughs> you can edit that in you can edit that in freely yeah <laughs> from the movie The Sixth Reel I spoke with co-writer co-director and star Charles Bush co-writer and co-director Carl Andrus and director of photography Jendra Jarnigan Charles, Carl, and Jendra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, David. It's nice to be here. So, Charles, I want to start with you because you're a legend. And I remember being at Sundance in 2003 uh, when Die, Mommy, Die played at the Eccles and brought the freaking house down. I'm so glad to hear you say that because, you know, when we have our experiences, we think it's just ours alone. And it's, it's always so wonderful when somebody else says that they were there and it kind of verifies to yes it was wonderful and and it was so exciting too because i um i i was in a play that carl directed called shanghai moon at the time and so they only sprung me to go to sundance basically for two days maybe three three days and i i had no understudy so i i guess oh, we wow. can't i guess we canceled those shows or something and then i, I think um, we worked the schedule around it so that you could go and like have a day off and a you know travel time but really i think just for the screening you had yeah. to come back yes and then um anyway so then i got back to new york and i did the show and when i came home there was a message 
and it was our our producer and director screaming at on the phone that I'd won <laughs> the best performance jury award. You did, yeah. And uh, I just I'd never you know won an an acting award before or since. And uh, <laughs> you know, and I had such a big chip on my shoulder that you know because I'm in drag, you know, nobody's taking me seriously. And suddenly, I I had to get all my uh, my jackets changed to to accommodate a smaller chip. I, f- I remember feeling terribly guilty because Charles won an award and he wasn't there to receive it. It's, oh, God, it was like he was Joan Crawford in the Oscars. <laughs> but that was, there was a lot of Dead Ringer in that movie. Dead Ringer is this Betty Davis movie that not a lot of people know, but but I am a huge fan of. I'm like, I've been an advocate for this movie for years. And Die, Mommy, Die, there's a, there's a whole chunk of it that, at least from what I remember, is Dead Ringer. It's like Dead Ringer, but drag... And Jason Priestley and Natasha Leone and all these awesome people. It's amazing. <laughs> That's very true. There's a lot, uh, well, Die, Mommy, Die, the whole movie was a, a kind of homage to um, people, of course, use that horrible phrase, hagsploitation. Yeah, hagsploitation, know. yes. Or, I, I like Grand Dame Guignol. You know, all those <laughs> movies post uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane that, that basically every female star over the age of 50 in, indulged in. And uh, Dead Ringer is is probably one of the most um, high budget ones because after the success of Baby Jane, Warner Brothers thought, okay, there's money to be made, and and they gave uh, Betty Davis quite a nice budget for that for that film. And and it's I, I you know as a big Davis f- fan, I, I like that. I think it's really the last time that she um, has any kind of love interest or sexual mm-hmm. or real sexuality in a movie. And it's and it's it's it, unlike Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and Baby Jane and all these other movies. Like even Straight Jacket is better known than Dead Ringer, and I still don't know why. Dead Ringer is just a much better movie. Yeah, it's it's well maybe done. that's why. Maybe it's because it's, <laughs> it's a better too, movie. It's too You're good. right, Carl. You're right, Carl. It really, it's are. not. It doesn't have that sort of cheapy edge, you know, where you're like, oh, there she is with the hatchet, you know, chopping off the mannequin head. You know, it's like it's total it's class. Really yeah, it's a good movie. It's a really good movie. So let's talk about the sixth reel, which is like it, it. It not only brings together so much of what I love, which is like there's a camp sensibility to it. Uh, Charles, you have a number of scenes in drag where it's kind of diegetic in the movie. In other words, it's your character dressing in drag for reasons in the movie to get to to do stuff. Um, so it's kind of played in that way a bit straight. Uh, like kind of straight drag, uh, if there's a, such a thing. It's just so much fun, and it also brings uh, it brings forth um, the lost cinema thing too, uh, which I love. And and this is the the plot of this is you know your character basically comes into contact with the last reel of a very famous and very real lost film that Todd Browning directed. Uh, one of the last silent films I think he did. Before, it was before Freaks, right? It was before yes. he went into the mm-hmm. sound. But it's literally gone. And and it's one of these films that's just like, if any, like the original cut of Amberson's. It's like if anyone finds it, that's going to be like this huge thing. So your character finds it and then wackiness ensues with a lot of very <laughs> crazy people. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Carl and I really want, wanted to make a movie that uh, had a bit of the feeling of the early 60s British Ealing comedies where a group of, of eccentric misfits pull off a caper. And, and, and it's always was a dream of mine. It's a fantasy that uh, of shooting a movie in my neighborhood, which is the West Village in Manhattan, w- with my longtime 
co-star Julie Halston and us running around the, the, the streets in crazy costumes. And, you know, Carl, th throughout the 25 years of our um, friendship and, and professional collaboration, just always somehow figures out a way of, of making my dreams come true. <laughs> he does. Well, you know, we, we wanted to make another movie. It had been a long time since we'd made A Very Serious Person back in 2005. It came out in 2006. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we sort of had dreams of turning this other really wonderful play that we did, that Charles wrote and starred in, called The Divine Sister. Uh, Charles has a wonderful screenplay for it, and we really want to make that movie. But uh, it turns out it would be a very expensive movie. It's period. It's got a lot of extras, musical numbers, oh fantasy sequences. It's a yeah, it's a big story. So it need a it need a real good budget to support that. So, but for this uh, project, we were we knew it had to be on the lower end, uh, lower budget size. And so we thought, what kind of movie could we make? And uh, and I thought, well, I've always wanted to get. Charles and Julie's sort of special chemistry together on screen, you know, what they have on stage. Let's see if we can capture that magic on screen. And we could make a contemporary movie that would, um, you know, sort of be about people talking, about relationships, about this obsession. And we sort of uh, said, well, let's make it a caper and shoot it in people's apartments. You know, that will, that will keep the cost down. And one of our favorite movies is Make Mine Mink, a Terry Thomas movie from, I think, 1960. Oh, wow. And, uh, That's oh, an I don't even know that one. Like, I know Terry Thomas, and I know the movies of that period. I actually don't know that one. Oh, it's based on a play. It's based on a play called uh, Breath of Spring, and it was, which also served as the inspiration for the Candor and Ebb musical 70 Girls 70. Oh. And so it's a bunch of, it's a basically a bunch of sort of, you know, odd characters who um, end up stealing furs to raise money for Dame Beatrice's children's charity to help the children. <laughs> and we just love that sort of movie. And so we sort of like thought, why don't we create something? And then Charles reminded me of uh, Val Luton's movie, uh, The Seventh Victim, oh, which is so about good. devil worshippers in Greenwich Village. And right. then we sort of love uh, movies that, you know, sort of 1960s movies that take place in uh, in New York City and like what's going on in the Bramford, uh, you know, the building, you know. So we thought we sort of thought that our movie obsessives could would be, you know, as obsessed about movies as the devil worshippers are in Rosemary's Baby or The Seventh <laughs> Victim. You know, it's just like what's going on there? So that sort of inspired. That's what, and then we just sort of developed the story from there. That's so amazing, and it's amazing that you basically, as independent filmmakers, you're taking your limitations and back into okay, what is possible? What can we do with this? You know, and and then you made it happen. Yes, well, that, mm -hmm. you know, we we were we try to write it as it was a producerial um, frame of mind because we get, get carried right. away and oh, and, and then the truck pulls up and we jump into the truck and then you know carl said we can't do that we gotta you know of course we, we always break that rule we're saying we have to keep it simple and one of us will invariably say and then a group of <laughs> dancers comes on and then i sing a number and we're, wait 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 stop, and then we back, run back, off back. and then we then we we fly off to romania <laughs> you know, that's not, we always want to go to Romania and these things, but we did. But but then, of course, the pandemic it made it rather uh, impossible to to shoot a movie in tiny apartments. Thank God, because that yeah. would just be awful anyway. And, <laughs> and so we shot the whole thing. Uh, well, all the 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 major scenes that take place in apartments were all built on a soundstage um, in, uh, in Beacon, New York. Uh, well, I want to bring. 
yeah, I want to bring Jendra into this. Jendra Jarnigan, the director of photography. Nice to meet you, Jendra. <laughs> <laughs> Jendra, <Dave>. Jen, <laughs> we go back a very long time, Jendra and I. Like back, like a, a, a number of years. I don't even want to say, but we met at NYU, and then we kind of bonded at Sundance's. After that, in fact, I think the first Sundance I was at, I think, was probably 2003, which Die, Mommy, Die. And I think that's when you and I first really shortly, Shortly thereafter, my first Sundance was 2005. But okay. I, do, I do remember you being an integral part of the people that I was meeting and staying connected to at that first Sundance. So as a director of photography, when your directors, Carl and Charles, come to you and say, we want to shoot this and we want to shoot it in this many days... <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your first reaction? Because what you pulled off here, like anybody in the industry listening to this is going to just, I want you to tell me how many days it was because I absolutely can't believe it when I saw the film. We shot in 15 10-hour days. I can't even. Yeah. Yeah. I literally and that was because can't of even. COVID, budgetary reasons and COVID restrictions. And so we had to really be careful and, and we had to be really planned out and we didn't have time for mistakes. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, like, we, but we're so lucky that we had Jendra because she found ways of keeping us on target and on track and working with our gaffer, John Roche, who they just, they figured out a lighting plan so that we wouldn't, you know, lose an inordinate amount of time that you can lose when you're worried about, you know, lighting a set and all of that. In fact, Jendra, talk about how lighting the sets. Um, and a soundstage actually saved us time. Well, you also, I mean, it's also very lucky that you, you got a soundstage because that's not something that a lot of indie films have that you have, but, but in a way, I guess COVID forced you into this situation. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Because our producer wanted us to make the movie. And so yeah. they just, you know, they found the budget to make that a reality. Yeah, I mean, it was early in COVID, not early in COVID, but early in when productions started up again so that the the COVID protocols that we were sort of all waiting on to be able to start working uh, safely and legitimately again were were fairly fresh. So this was most people's first It was like October, film. right? O September, no, uh, October? September, uh, yeah, September, October. So we were prepping in August. Um, so the stages were available because nobody was nobody was shoot, <laughs> shooting yet and we shot at um, umbra stages in newburgh and um i mean I, I don't think i mean as charles was talking earlier like could you imagine if we had to sh have shot that in practical locations like the the spatial constraints and loading in oh, not, not just during covid my God. yeah yeah I not mean, just crazy. during covid that's why the answer was no we couldn't because we couldn't pack you know the the, the cruise you know a, a film crew into a small space with covid but if it hadn't been covid yeah we wouldn't have been able to like trying to shoot in spaces that small that were practical spaces would have been incredibly difficult and and trying to do it in 15 days would have been uh very i don't want to say impossible because nothing's impossible it's just the level of compromise that you have to subject yourselves to to make it make it fit to make it fit the schedule. So well, and, being, your, and your well, film looks really, really good. I mean, it's like, even when an independent film kind you. of metric, it's like slick and it looks like it cost, you know, I don't know, a few million actually, but it's like, I, wow, I know it, it, it couldn't have. Thank you. <laughs> right. Well, you know, but what Jendra was saying was so interesting. Like with that, we did have one, a restaurant, we shot in a restaurant in Beacon that was, you know, about, you know, 15 minute drive from the studios because we, we couldn't, we built five sets. We built two four wall sets 
and then two uh, two wall sets, and then we used the actual uh, walls of this of the soundstage to create a basement set, and then so we we couldn't build. Uh, another apartment and we couldn't build another um, restaurant. So we, we had to seek places. And even when we went to the restaurant, which was, you know, we had a sizable dining room, but they we had to stop shooting because our COVID, um, you know, protectors, uh, they, they were like, there's too many people in here. We have to, we you know, we, we have to stop and you have to move up this equipment outside. So we really... We came across, you know, like um, a lot of uh, extra effort. But if we had to do that all the time, I just don't know how we would have really done it in 10-hour days. And remember, Gender, there was there was the basement scene that we were worried we didn't get enough footage. And so they were like, what if we have to go back and shoot it? Don't take the set down. And we were like, we just don't know when we would do it because we were running out of time in the, in the sound mm-hmm. stages mm-hmm. before we had to go to New York City for exteriors. Wait. But you asked an interesting question I wanted to answer about the the plan for the lighting. So we, um, for Jimmy's apartment, there's so many different scenes in there that we wanted them to all be different in terms of the time of day and, um, you know, the mood and the tone, depending on what the scenes were going on, you know, different days. Um, And so we we, we built things to be very flexible, to be changed quickly and, and came up, you know, my, my gaffer, John Roche, I have a relationship with, he does a lot of commercials. Um, and so we had, we had a shorthand and we knew each other's working style. I was very, very lucky to have him on a feature. He usually doesn't do features because they pay so much uh, worse than commercials, <laughs> but um, <laughs> because there was not much going on, he's like, well, I mean, creatively, he loves features, but financially, it's a different story. So uh, he's like, well, if I ever wanted to do a feature, I'm not my chances of actually missing out on lots of commercial work and taking a huge pay cut are are diminished with this whole COVID situation. So now would be the time. Um, So so we devised a lot of, you know, lighting plans uh, quite a lot in advance in terms of uh, quick, quick resets. And then the other major thing was the. Um, the rummage sale. So when um, one of, I think it's 18 page, somewhere between like 17 and 19 pages. It's a a crucial scene in the movie that kind of sets up, it's in the first act, but it kind of sets up the discovery of the film. And we had one day to shoot all of it. That's insane. And you meet all the characters. You did that in one day? That's insane. We had to do, two. well, the two Two is really mostly with the, with, um, with the other group, with the, with Charles and Julie. But we had like we had a we had a lot of scenes, um, but we really had to split up everything that was in that set for really two days, I believe. Gendra, isn't that correct? Yeah. So we had to shoot eighteen, roughly eighteen pages with eight characters, um, a little bit of passage of time, but mostly continuous. Um, and, and it's the introduction of um, most of the characters. So. Um, uh, and then there's a lot of like interpersonal dynamic, like group dynamics. Uh, going on and so we we only had two days to shoot wow. that so That's... the num- the number of people and the number of interactions and um, we basically kept the coverage really simple where each of the little um, sidebar conversations going on at this basically event memorial service slash rummage sale um, that we, we we kept the coverage simple simple we Minimized camera movement. There was basically no space in there to do any dolly moves and um, treated each piece like almost like little mini scenes. 
and did the lighting in a way that it wasn't going to change because of the the consistency of the because the scene was was in you know continuity time not not yeah. not that we shot it in continuity maybe we kind of did but the I the time kind of did we kind, kind of, of did, did. but yeah. the time the scene is is all you know runs almost in real time so we um devised the lighting i knew that to get all that coverage that the lighting was going to need to be kind of a one size fits all approach which the danger of that is that it looks like crap you know the danger it's why soap operas look like the way soap <laughs> operas do is they light them once right. and then you know there's light all over the walls and you but know, it's early in the movie. You're trying to introduce these people. And what I was going to say is like film students and people like that. Like if you're looking for a way to do exposition that's interesting and fun, this is a very good example of like you're you're introducing a panoply of characters and a panoply of people like doing different things and weird things and making things on the stove and like, you know, <laughs> freaking out about a life magazine and like all this and eating shrimp and all this other crazy stuff. And everyone gets their moment. But you, you you don't do anything showy, and you shouldn't because it's in the first part of the movie, and you don't want to like distract from like you're, you're giving the audience a lot of information here. Mm-hmm. The I other do- part that was really really helpful was that most of our cast were Broadway actors, so so therefore we could we could think of it as a yeah we could think of it as a play, you know, and they could yeah. therefore roll with it very easily, which was that was that helped with the performing and the, and the shooting of it. So, okay. Be, 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 wait, before you move on, I just want to say something there that's like <laughs> a, a testament to Carl's brilliance. Because um, we, we're all very familiar with Charles's brilliance and, you know, not to take anything away from Charles's brilliance, but, we should but talk it's, about it's, it's on, it's on display <laughs> and everyone knows it, but I want to talk about Carl's brilliance because it's a lesser known um, talent is, uh, he is a master of blocking. With all of their theater experience, you know, a lot of um, film directors or film directors who are not, you know, tenure TV veterans um, don't usually struggle with how how to do interesting blocking, but how to do blocking that is like true to character, true to life, true to human behavior. Organic. Um, organic. That's a great word for it. And so Carl, knowing knowing these actors already personally, but also knowing um how this group dynamic was going to work he was able to we basically drew a floor plan of how people would move up about the space and that let that helped us um do a shot list in advance which was imperative to being able to get this amount of content done in two days um and it would the the ideas were good and they they held because a lot of times when you're shot listing and you kind of presuppose where the people might go you know you're you so much magic happens in the in the on set in the magic i mean in the blocking rehearsal with the actors and then you end up you know pivoting and changing what you're going to do because that that ability to to visualize what's going to work um, i was very impressed with it especially since the sets didn't exist yet it's like some people can do that if you went in a location <laughs> scout and you can stand in the space and you can think, oh, there's a countertop here that one will stand on this side and one. But we're just going by floor plans and like mental images in our mind's eye. And Carl's like all over it. It was just 
Um, well, incredibly... But that's a necessary thing to do. And when you're getting this much shot this quickly and you want it to be of quality, you need to go in there. I mean, and you know this, Jenner, and you, you, you all know this. It's just like as prepared as humanly yeah. possible. And, and it's because it's the only way to yeah, do it on this level. It's true. No, it's true. And, you know, and I have so much experience of having to work really fast, whether it's in summer stock or doing um, concerts in New York or having to stage full musicals in a, in a week or uh, for like, you know, Broadway benefits and stuff and just having like no time, I have to imagine the whole thing in my head based on nothing but like a, a drawing that I've, you know, <laughs> I've made myself. So I'm that that's just what I've been doing for, you know, over 20 years. And uh, that and, and it served me very well. But let's talk about the cast. We've talked about Julie Halston. Let's talk about Tim Daly with that accent popping up and being all hot. <laughs> that was his idea. Yeah, well, you know, it's um, interesting with, with uh, actors, you know, particularly with a star actor like Tim Daly. We were so thrilled to have him. And uh, and then he and the part was, a, a, I think, a bit underwritten, you know, as just kind of male kind of. Love handsome interest. leading man. Yeah. Handsome leading man, a little underwritten. And he's a very smart guy. And of course, when when a, you're dealing with a star and they've got ideas, it gets a little nervous. Oh God, what if he <laughs> what if he came up with some really wackadoodle notion that we'd have to talk him out of and not feel disrespected? <laughs> uh, but thank God, all of every idea he had was so good that that we we'd be fools not to take. And so uh, in each, but it was I, funny when he would get then. the text or the email that said, "Can we have a call? I'd like to throw something by you." You're like, uh oh. <laughs> Yeah. But then Charles is right. Like he was like, what, what if he had a British accent? And what, you know, and that gave us new ideas to add to the script. Each of his scenes, he, he contributed to the script. Uh, that's, there's no better recommendation for an actor than somebody who does that. If, there's, if their ideas are good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's a bizarre notion. You know, I mean, what, what and if he'd said, come in and said, what if I was wearing, you know, a leotard, <laughs> uh, you know, and, yeah, might have been a little. Well, that could have been fun, but you know. <laughs> well, among among the people that I always love seeing in films, but I don't see enough in films, Margaret Cho. Oh, she's so fun. She was she's amazing and hilarious. Lovely presence on set. Um, Andre De Shields. The Wiz. I've been obsessed with with Andre De Shields since I was a kid. You know, and and just to when we were talking about the, these characters and who we might ask, and and you know, and we we thought of him, and we. That was just so exciting. And, you know, we if if we hadn't been during a pandemic, we probably would not have had him or Patrick Page because they're starring on Broadway in Hadestown. So, yeah, you know, we 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 got to keep them busy for a little yeah, bit. Well, of time. It's a great, great thing doing a movie with where, where everybody, you know, almost the bulk of the cast have uh, at least 40 years of of ex- acting experience. And, and that's a wonderful thing you know so each, yes all, each. all the people in our, <laughs> our each yes and and um we have our youngest member of our cast doug plowd who played um rodney is uh has encyclopedic knowledge of um of theater every single one of their careers and oh, so amazing. He, he would diagram all the different professional relationships oh well you know uh, d hody and um uh, Katie, we're, we're both in Will Rogers Follies. 
and Heather McRae and Andre DeShields were in hair. And just he, it, it was so funny. And Tim all, Daly and Heather were in a play, were in coastal <laughs> disturbances. Like he just, he knew it all, you know, and it was, it was, I, you know, I knew it all too. And it was just like that somebody else who's that much younger knows these things endears one to yeah. me. You know, it's just like, he's, that's just like so great that he appreciates these careers that were in front of him. And it was like, he had just walked onto the MGM lot, you know, it was just <laughs> like, Oh my God, these stars. It was great. I mean, you can feel like, it sounds like it was a love fest on set. Even though you were shooting in the midst of COVID pre vaccine must've felt like very kind of oppressive and, and, and crazy from that aspect. But none of that, is is present in the film. The film is so light and breezy and fun and and just it just moves so well. well I, I do think that uh, in a certain sense for for almost for really for the whole cast, you know, we had been also sequestered in quarantine for several months at this point. That to be sprung from prison and to be uh, <laughs> on a set and acting and you know that that it, there was this great feeling of joy of being back to who you are. Back, back to life, and yeah. making this movie, and making a movie that really is all you know about a cel- the celebration of cinema, um, a Valentine to to New York, New York City. Okay. Oh yeah, you know, all of that meant a lot to, to people, and and you know, as and the, said, the only disappointment was not being able to sort of sit down and have dinner or like hang out at the bar at the hotel afterwards, is because we all really did have to sequester which yeah. was a bummer but you know i guess everybody found time you know when they were in the dressing rooms and whatever to you know right hang out and talk of course gender and i we only got to hang out with each other <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't get to spend much time in the dressing room so charles you you gave yourself the james bond role you get to you get to sleep with two guys not a spoiler <laughs> maybe like three you- Maybe, maybe three. No, no, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. Actually, you're absolutely right. I will give you that third one because that is very, very, I would be shocked if that weren't the case. And there's a fourth way because uh, Richard Beacon's character and I have had a sexual history that's alluded oh, yeah. to um, at one point. Well, maybe more because of also Mr. Bauman. So Gerald. Like, yeah. yeah, Gerald. Yeah, Gerald. Charles. Yeah. Listen, yeah. listen. I I have an idea for your next movie now. It's <laughs> <laughs> It's just you. And a, a crazy bunch of characters, and you just work your way through them. <laughs> it's sort of like the next movie we're writing. Ah! Oh no! Yeah, is it? Yeah. Oh, I want to see it. Oh my god! I was going to ask if I was. I was a bit subconscious, so at one point thinking, "Oh my god!" You know, uh, every every male in this movie, either I'm sleeping with them or they 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 want to sex with me. And here I'm, you know, own it, um, own your in, hotness. In my age, I, I was a little worried though that. That when the audience sees me with Tim Daly, that they might think it's like Mae West and Sex Tet. <laughs> and <laughs> Tim V. Dalton with, oh, with great oh, glee no. finally oh. gets into bed with 87 year old Mae West. Okay, I was this, worried about that. This is the first time on the show we have brought up Sex Tet. Um, it, it may be the last time. I can't. I can't get through that one. I, I got through my Rebecca and Rich. I did not get through Sex Tat. I, like, I tried. It's a rough I one. I really tried. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was that. That's a like. It's a nineteen seventy eight movie, everyone, and it's uh, it's challenging. Uh, but it's it's you know, Mae West is in it, and she's glorious in it. Uh, it's still a bit I th- challenging. I think the way that we've got to approach Sex Tat is not as as if you're watching a movie, but more as if you're watching a. Um, a tribute to Mae West, and, and there's something kind of sweet that 
yeah. rather than giving giving her an award, they let her star once more at 87 in a movie where every man I'll go is, that. is desperate to have sex with her and she gets to wear uh, have a fashion sequence of Edith Head clothes. And I think you just have to think of it as, <gasps> as like an award show. You could you could actually mm-hmm. remake that, Charles. Thank you. No, no, you could you could put yourself in the back. We're going back to the hag exploitation moment. You could like totally like do veer off into the sextet universe. Yeah, gender. You said you're friends with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. story again. You just said that I'm like an 87 year old Mae West. No, okay. I d- <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, you guys won an anyway. Outfest award. We did for the cast, for this for the wonderful ensemble cast. cast. Congratulations, and very, very well-deserved, because you rarely go into independent films and kind of just fall in love with everybody, and this is one of those movies. It's just it's just lovely. Now, tell me, is is it, um, have you gotten uh, a distribution, or are you still talking to people? We're or? still talking to people and, and, uh, and working on working those angles. And, I, uh, and I then would be astonished if this doesn't, more if this festivals doesn't get picked up. Yeah, I, like, I'm sure it's going to play at every Thank festival. You. Yeah, because this is, it's just too much fun. And there are too few movies that are this fun and airy and light and, and in love with cinema. And I know that I, I was the target audience. I know a lot of people are. I hope so. Yeah, you don't really yeah. see that. You don't really see those kind of movies anymore. That a, 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 a small comedy with of characters that and where the building doesn't blow up at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that was a. It sort of went out in the early '80s, you know. But I love so many of those movies, you know, like that would star like Sally Field and Kiss Me Goodbye with James Caan. Oh or, my God, yes. Um, Mandy Patinkin and, and Glenn Close and Maxie, one of my favorite movies. Like, oh, you wow. know, I'm the one who likes these movies. You know, and Doug Plout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were a lot of Murphy's romance with James Gardner and Sally yeah, Field and, oh yeah. and all those, those all those wonderful like you know eighties kind like, of like it's like uh, it's like it's like uh, Neil Simon movies too like Goodbye Girl oh, and Chapter Only when Two I laugh and you can make Chapter you know, Three. <laughs> I love those movies so much. That, but that's when I was a kid, and when I was a kid, you just went to the movies. There weren't adult movies and kid movies so much. You just you yeah. know you went to the movies with your parents and saw the Four Seasons. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. It's a different, it's a different, it's just a different market and there's so much more content and there's so many more places that the content goes. Um, yes. but I, I, I cannot wait for your next one. I, I assume, are you still trying to make the divine sister? Because I would love like everything you've told me about this. I'm like, Oh my God, that sounds amazing. Yeah. We're going to, we're, you know, we're going to, we're going to keep trying to figure out how we can get, you know, find a real, make a real budget for it and see if we can, you know, do it. I think, cause I, I would, that's a big dream of mine to, you know, have that sort of Psycho Beach Party, Die Mommy Die, Divine Sister, starring the great Charles Bush. I just think we need it. I think we need it. It's amazing. And what's next for you, Charles? Carl and I started writing a, a new script. And uh, we hope that, you know, if the last one was done so quickly, we, we hope that this will, um, that we can yeah, make We can't wait another year. 15 years. No, no. <laughs> so we don't want to, we're hoping within the year to make this another picture and then another one and another one the world premiere at outfest <laughs> was so much fun and the audience was so into it what was it like seeing the movie with that that crowd it was the first time we had seen the movie with an audience yeah which was, was terrifying i can't you know, imagine because we because it's, everything goes back to the, the covid you know we because of that we never had a cast and crew screening we've we've seen we, you know carl and i've seen the film on a screen and gender we with three of us because you know to work on it right but uh, and, and not with a crowd 
yeah, just two people have seen it. Uh, so that was scary to with the comedy because it's you know it wasn't like it was a play where we could think oh that didn't work we'll we'll change it for the matinee. So yeah, we, we just uh, it was, uh, and of course people were all masked and sitting far apart. But despite all that, uh, it got such nice big laughs. So it's very encouraging. Yeah, I, that was really cool. when we got the first laugh that I expected. I, I was like, this has got to be our first laugh. And when that happened, I, I felt like, okay, now I can, I yeah. can sit down, I can sit back and relax and just sort of see what else uh, they respond to, uh, you know. And, and by and large, I feel like we got that at that screening, we got the laughs that I, as a director, were, were hoping we would get. That like, that's funny to me, you know. <laughs> and then some others that were unexpected, you know. It played really, really well. And you're you're also in a, in a group at Outfest with a lot of gay people and a lot of cinema lovers. Um, so it was basically like, you know, like ground zero for exactly the people that really would love this film. And I was one of them. Thank well, you so thank much. I love I loved seeing it with an audience to hear to hear all the laughter. You know, it's such, such a it's, it's kind of, I think, why we make movies is, is to Completely, share yeah. to share them with with an audience. Yeah. And when we were filming and we were filming the, the scene in the um, in the lobby of the movie theater, there was just so much activity buzzing around that we were blocking the scene and these people from the public just opened the doors and were like, what's playing tonight? <laughs> they thought that the, they thought that the cinema anything? village had opened again oh. and we had to, you know, we had to disappoint them and say, Oh, well seeing sorry. this, <laughs> seeing this film at Outfest uh, with a bunch of cinema lovers. And, and certainly I haven't seen too many movies in the theater in the last you know year and a half. Um, it's just very special, and it was really lovely, and it was lovely seeing you on screen again, Charles. It was lovely seeing you in drag on screen again, actually, like in the car and at the end, which was just fucking amazing. <laughs> I wanted, I, I love making movies. I've made so few of them, you know, in, in my career, and and yet, it, it, even though most of my work has been in the theater, I'd say the most exciting experiences I've had have been the, the few films I've made. And so um, I, I wanted it so badly and, and kept expecting over the past 12 years, I had different ideas that I thought would just simply happen again, because, like the other two movies. And then they, they didn't. And I was beginning to just give up the whole idea. So I guess that was, I guess I'll never return to the screen ever. Uh, <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, it is funny that each of the, the four movies that I've been involved in just came about so quickly. They weren't in, in long development periods like most movies are. They were, they just happened. And I kept waiting for that thing to happen again. And it wasn't, and I waited 12 years, 12 years, David. And then finally, this one came about just like the other ones did. Immediately, no, no development time, no waiting around. We just, just did it. And it was such, and so it was this great joy for, uh, for the cast, the crew. And, and then for, you know, All for me, just to, 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 to be back in front of the cameras once more when I thought that I'd said farewell. <laughs> I really did, David. With a very sympathetic cinematographer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You're a rock star, Gendra. <laughs> yeah, it's just you know how to make you know how to make people look beautiful. You make how to make beautiful people look beautiful on camera. How to make people look their best is what I like to say because it's not <laughs> that they're not beautiful already, but uh, no, Charles, it, Charles, I will admit to saying this: the one thing that I am still a little bit surprised by is that tale of the allergist wife, which I saw on Broadway with Tony Roberts and Linda Lavin and Michelle Lee back in, I think what is it? 2003, 2004 and it won Tony's and it was a big success. Why have I not seen a movie of this? It seems like such an easy, easy, easy thing. You would think so. And it's been, it's been, been developed for 20 years 
And, um, That's insane. And, and, you don't need to develop it. You have this. It's a good. It, ah, well, it's, it's a good script. It's almost <laughs> several times. It's, it's almost happened, then it falls apart. Um, and actually, it's funny that now actually is is probably more alive at the mo- right now than it's ever been. Um, oh, that's good. You know, I want to see it. Yeah, there's a big uh, company that a financing company that I think is ready to go, and so yeah, so it's 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 things. It's more alive now than it's been for a long time. Not crossing fingers. I can't wait to see who's in it. Actually, I can't wait to see who who who's gonna. I, can you tell? Oh, Are you allowed? No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be I'll be looking at deadline for that announcement. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Charles, Carl, and Jendra, thank you so much. Your movie is the sixth reel. I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was a highlighted outfest. Thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for having yes. us, David. Thanks, David. This is great. Coming up after the break, I talk to Lauren Hathaway, the writer-director of the award-winning Outfest centerpiece selection, The Novice. want to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers, as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization, and especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. Lauren Hathaway, welcome to The Outcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Like, when you think about independent films and finding a gem at a festival or something like this, this is like one of those movies. Yeah, it's been, I have to, like, I'm very exhausted right now. I signed I signed with CAA right after the, the film premiered at Tribeca. Congratulations. And sort of getting the response. Thank you. I'm getting the response. So we got picked up by IFC. We'll be out in December 17th. We'll have a small theatrical window, you know, pending uh, Delta and same day release, you know, online. But um, You're blowing I have to the remind lead. myself because I was gonna I was gonna end with that. Like <laughs> IFC picked it up and it's coming out December seventeenth. That's so fucking amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I gotta remind myself though, it's like I'm living my my I'm from small town Texas, like Bible thumping Trump loving gun toting is where I come from. And I am living my fifteen year old self's dream. You know, like everything that I, I could want it to have happened out of a first film, I think has happened and it was not without a lot of blood, sweat and tears. So yeah. uh, it feels good you know i don't know if you even want to get into it but texas has been in the news a lot recently and it must be kind of a bitter like i I, and we don't have to get into it if you don't want to but oh my goodness like i know a lot of people who are from texas or who grew up in texas who have a lot of very strong opinions about this and and generally all that you know oh my god what the hell are they doing yeah it's it's very upsetting and i think the thing that's the most upsetting about it i mean i love texas a lot about it but the state almost flipped blue last election like it it was this close and if it wasn't for fucking gerrymandering and things like that like it probably would have been blue would have gone the way of georgia and knowing that and knowing that this isn't the majority of people who think this way is what makes it so fucking frustrating and knowing that these politicians and things who are pushing this through their wives their mistresses their daughters are still going to get abortions um it's very this classist. Is not about yeah 
Yeah, it, it is. And it's, it's just about elections and it's just like this dog and pony show, but it actually affects people's lives and it's incredibly frustrating. And uh, all the shit that happened last year leading up to the election uh, was one of the things that kind of inspired my move to Paris, actually. Um, I just felt like I had to get out of this country for a while. I need to just have some perspective and then look back on things. But um, I love Texas, but I fucking... It is, yeah, it is, it is not a happy time, so. Why'd you pick Paris? I mean, I love Paris, so don't get me wrong, but it's like, that's quite a leap from, from Texas to LA to Paris. Yeah, it is. It was kind of a whim. I had this, uh, <laughs> I had this pretty dramatic, uh, ending of a relationship during the middle of a portrait, uh, it happened in the middle of a portrait of a lady on fire screening at the Arclight Hollywood on Valentine's Day 2020. Oh my God, um, that is like, okay. You can rip my head off if this is insensitive, but that is the most lesbian thing I've ever heard in my life. And I love it. It is extremely lesbian. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was an eventful evening. And, uh, I, after, and I was also cutting the novice at the time and I kind of made this decision. I'm going into a coon, whatever. And I wanted to see the film and I couldn't will myself to see it. All the lesbians in LA were talking about it. And I, I didn't really get to see it whenever we were having this big fight during it. So eventually I, I willed myself to go back and see the film and it blew my mind. Like the last 15 minutes were a punch to the face. I saw it three yeah. times, three or four times total in theaters. And then the last time, right before I went to saw it for the last time, I stood up in Cafe Vida where I write and I said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to learn French. I'm going to spend the summer in Paris. That was March 13th, 2020. Oh my God. Everything fucking shut down. So my life became, and I was already in a cocoon. I wasn't on social media. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't dating. Um, so my life was basically four hours a day of studying French and then just cutting the novice and just having a, a mental mind fuck. And at some point, the pandemic obviously kept going and I just decided, fuck it, I'm going to try and move there. And uh, when the visa applications opened in um, December, I applied. They let me in. I have a talent visa here, so I'm allowed to be here and like work and write. Um, I have my residence card. But I'm really here for no reason other than why not? Um my you God, know, I want and, you uh, as my life coach. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I'm like, ins- <laughs> like, I've been talking to you for what, two minutes? And like, I'm inspired right now. And it's like, that's amazing. Like, because a lot of people, I think, especially when they're creatives, and I do want to get to the novice, so don't, don't get me wrong. But it's like, when you're creative, like, you kind of have to operate in this way where you're levitating maybe an inch off the floor, but you still have to be able to like make contact and, and bring yourself forward. You have to simultaneously be in that dream creative world and yet be practical and get, you know, live your life and get your shit done and pay your bills and all that stuff. And it's really hard to do. And I think that a lot of creatives are are kind of tagged with this oversensitive, you're crazy, whatever kind of thing. Like, you know, but taking care of yourself in this way and saying like, I'm going to Paris, I'm learning French, I'm doing this. That's very inspiring. Yeah, and I uh, like the thing about me that I've realized, and the more that this keeps happening, and the, and the more I'm gonna keep gonna do it, I, I do, I'm gonna do it until it stops working. But I am a very goal oriented person. I set very specific goals, and I go very hard at them. And it's they seem at first outrageous. Like when I was 15, I wanted to be a, be a writer director. I went to uh, college immediately got hit with imposter syndrome like all the dudes from the big cities with the fucking you know their cool gear and whatever and i was like i can't direct or whatever and i, the trust I fell funds, into um, they, can, they can make like fifty thousand sixty thousand dollars short films and then you're just like, <laughs> like how, yeah how some of that. that yeah i i, yeah, I lived that myself but also just you know i was one of the only the only women uh on the thing and that wasn't even so much of it but it was just like i, I felt i wasn't i'm from a small i just wasn't ready for it and kill bill was the film that made me want to be a filmmaker 
Uh, wow. That's what I saw when I was 15, and it, it blew my mind. Um, and then in college, I, you know, I gravitate toward post-production because editing is really an extension of the writing process. You write three times when you write, when you direct, and when you edit it. And um, fell in love with that, fell in love with sound, which is half the cinematic experience, but no one is thinking about it. I know that for a fact. It's a relatively cheap tool. Some might even say more than why. half. Perhaps, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, then, um, so, and then when I came to L.A., um, after uh, um, college, just like I, I worked in reality TV for a while in Dallas, kind of realized that, that was a top. And then it was like, well, I want to work in sound. I want to go to L.A. I want to pursue a career working on sound and movies. And I got here. I didn't know where to start. So I set a, a goal that I thought was ridiculous. It's like, I want to work on a Tarantino film because I didn't know what else to do. And so I set that goal, which seemed fucking ridiculous. But then I worked backwards. I was like, okay, well, who does this films? Like, where does that person work? Who mm-hmm. can I contact there? Mm-hmm. And when I was 25, my first ever recording session was uh, supervising the recording session for Tarantino's voiceover for The Hateful Eight. So in 10 years, I had gone from seeing Kill Bill, wanting to be a filmmaker, to being in the room with my hero, having him ask me, what do you think? Should we do another take? Like, how was that? And that for me was surreal. And that was my first ever fucking recording session. Wow. Um, so then that happened. And then I had also set this goal to supervise sound for theatrical features by the time I was 30. And then by the time right after that, the next couple of years, I was getting hired on really big projects. I was on my way. Um, when I was 27, I was making, you know, as much money as both of my parents combined when they retired, which for me being from a small town, it was just surreal to me. Um, I tried and luckily failed buying a, a house in LA. Now, granted, like that was like the lowest end of the house with houses <laughs> with bullet holes in them. And it's, you're still spending insane amounts of money. It's, and I'm so glad it didn't work out. It's nuts. But, um, it, it's I lived it's off, truly yeah. nuts. Like, you know, it's like you, you look and it's like $700,000 and yeah. the thing is like falling over. And you're it's, like, it's for me, I, I was in escrow house even at one point and i'm glad it did not work out it was kind of like out of the way and like a shitty house and whatever but i ended up living off that money that i had saved for the down payment basically to help support me as i was pursuing this new career and also in when there was a point when i really realized i didn't have any queer friends i hadn't really dated women as much as i wanted to like i didn't have the experience i wanted realized the queer scene wasn't going to come to me and I set this goal fuck it I'm getting in the queer scene and then over the next couple years turned into the biggest LA lesbian cliche I mean I had a breakup with the fucking (laughs) portrait of a lady on fire screening for fuck's sake like breaking up in the middle of portrait of a lady on fire is pretty much like like the pinnacle of of yeah and like I went back to LA for for the outfest and um I I did I did all the gay events that were happening I ran into all my exes there's all this fucking (laughs) drama (laughs) like I'm like wow I've come so far and just to think like a couple years ago it seemed impossible and but I like made it a fucking goal and then after I had a series of breakups at one point I lost all my friends because all my relationships were tied up in uh my friendships were tied up in relationships and so I set a goal I'm gonna friend date and I made that summer that was summer 2019 I made some of the best friends of my life and some of the people who are closest to me now I did not know before then um and then also in November 2016 you see a very goal right and this keeps working though it's like November 2016 I was like realizing I was on my way to do my sound career realizing I was gonna like hit a cap and it was kind of gonna be the same thing over and over and two when you're working in this industry the more I've worked with a lot of my heroes actors directors editors producers whatever these really talented people right and you start to see there's like no one's really a creative genius I can think of one person I consider a genius everyone else is just a normal person and they've got experience or whatever uh, and then there's some people who are really fucking stupid who are somehow yeah. also working at a really high level. And that all kind of gave me confidence to... I've met a fair number of those, to, um, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, that why, all, how did you that, get here exactly? Yeah. yeah, and if that person can do it, why can't I? And so November 2016, I set a five-year goal to transition into writing and directing. And uh, 
my movie is coming out December 2021, which is five years, one month. So not too, not too shabby. That's, that's amazing. And I resonate with a lot of the things you were talking about when you we were talking about kind of like, I think that, you know, when you're an early gay, like you do have those relationships and all of your friendships are kind of tied up in them. And there's a lot of drama because nobody knows like, you know, how to handle themselves. Like I didn't know how to handle myself like really in a relationship until like much later, um, you know, and you learn it, you learn it the hard way. And then you basically understand that dating is just kind of like you're meeting people. And something can happen, something can't. But it's not about, like, it's like, as, as we were, I talked to my friends, it's just like, you're, you shouldn't be husband shopping. You shouldn't be, like, boyfriend shopping. It's like, this is just you being out with people and seeing if there's something there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, I think it's the only way to be sane and happy, like, as a, as a single person and gay. Yeah. And, I mean, the, I don't know if this is the same existing with uh, dudes, but in the lesbian community, there's this cliche of the ex-girlfriend and that ex-girlfriend is my friend or my girlfriend. Um, and that's really true. It's like, again, everyone I was, there was points I was hanging out this weekend with someone, uh, three of us had dated the same person. I had dated one person. Like we had all, it's just all very incestuous. Yes. And that's another reason I fled LA. Like I love that part in that community, but also when you're not in a good place, sometimes it can feel absolutely suffocating. Oh, completely. And like, I'm like, I gotta get the fuck out of LA for a while. There's a pandemic. Like... I don't know what's going on in the world. I'm so sick of running into my exes of the exes of exes. And that. I'm like, I just need a new start. And, uh, and then it works. Like some people who know me well were like, yeah. Or like, yeah, Lauren, you're totally going to do it. You're totally going to move to Paris. And some people who didn't know me as well were like, sure. You know, you hear people all the time. Like, I'm going to go to a foreign country and I'm going to like, learn. no, I'm like, I won't fucking do it. If I can get the visa, I'm fucking going. And it's been a ride and I've done it and I have no idea what's coming, but. Well, but that's the know, best thing in the world. And and you should be it. around those people that like understand that you're going to do it simply because those are the people like you get energy from. It's just like you, like you 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 realize that you have friends that you feel invigorated by and then you have friends that you're just like it feels like work or more work. It's like you're 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 kind of like trying to defend or you're trying to like validate yourself and it's like you just have to like distance yourself from those people because they don't even know they're doing it sometimes yes exactly there's an obligation yes yeah and i think like now the older i'm getting the 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 busier i'm getting the more focused i'm getting i'm being more selective about how i spend my energy and i want every relationship yeah every relationship whether i'm not even dating right now i don't have the energy the time the focus for it it's not a priority but like i even friendships like i want someone in my life who's going to be additive and this is the same shit they say when you're packaging a project, when you're trying to make mm-hmm. a movie. We want to bring someone to the team who's going to be added. Oh. We want a producer who's going to be, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the same thing with your life. Like, don't go and just, I have, you know, it, it hurts sometimes. I have young filmmakers wanting to meet with me or have coffee or whatever, and I want to help people, but I'm so depleted already. I don't have an hour yeah. to give to a dozen people. Like, it's just, it's so exhausting. It's just so, like, you got to get a little selfish. And it sounds callous. But it's not. It's really not. And you have to be, like you have to treat yourself as the person that you care about the most. In the sense that, like, if you were a good friend and you saw you, you'd be like, "No, fuck all those people. You got to do what you got to do." Yeah, and I actually read. I, I ran across some quote or something on Twitter recently, which I'm, I need to give up for a while because I need to cleanse. But um, <laughs> something is talking about how it's like we don't read anymore because we feel like we we should. And this is I'm guilty of this. I feel like I should be productive at all times. Like I don't feel like I can be reading for pleasure. But yeah. it said something that was really beautiful. Like you, we need we need to rest. We need sunlight. We need like good books. We need to recharge. Like 
you have to be filling up yeah. while you're emptying and they both take time and energy. And mm -hmm. so I'm always thinking deplete, 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 deplete. And I'm really trying to refocus my framing now. Like my time that I'm not working does not mean it's my time available to another person um, exactly. to protect it for myself and prioritize it so that when I do connect with people, when I have conversations, when I'm talking to someone on a podcast or whatever, you can have like a meaningful yeah. interaction and not just be going through the fucking motion. Because you're you present. I mean? You're actually talking about something. Yeah. Like we haven't even talked about your movie yet, but it's very interesting, the conversation we've had because your movie focuses around a character who is basically her defining trait is she is driven. Yeah. She is like the whole movie is yeah. basically about her deciding she wants to be in the top boat of, of this rowing team and doing absolutely anything she can, pushing herself to the psychological and physical limits to get there. And you watch her go through this transformation in this process. And I want to talk about that performance um, by Isabel Furman, who is unbelievable. Incredible. Uh, it's yeah. like I watch her and I'm just like, oh, my God. So how – how did this come about? So, because this this film, I you know I wrote the first draft of the script in July 2017. Attached producers January 2018. We found a good chunk of money relatively quickly, and then it was like a year and a half of false starts and stops. And I, I actually had moved on from the idea of it ever getting made when I got greenlit. But um, I, the the row thing, I really was trying to test because shooting on the water, like you know, I think it's Clint Eastwood or everyone says water, uh, kids, and animals are the three most nightmarish things to yes. shoot with. And this is my first feature, and it's set around the water. So I was really <laughs> curious in this question. Yes. What I think made the biggest difference in people really getting into the idea of the film was this lookbook that I made that was like pretty extensive and pretty. Um, I try to make the lookbook feel. You know, I've seen a lot of them. They tend to be kind of by the you know like by the book or or yeah. clean or whatever. This was very sort of manic creative journal thing that I made um, as if it was Alex's notebook and sort of talking about the look and tone and feel of the movie and did a lot of sort of creative work on it and it tried to capture the tone of the film and just how like when you looked at it you would know what film you're getting without even having to read or looking at any pictures like you just soak it up I think that actually had more impact on me getting funding and producers interested even even actresses probably it's super important yeah and and, and we don't and honestly like when we're talking about independent film and how independent film gets made this is actually something that I don't hear talked about a lot and and I know friends of mine who are graphic designers like I know one graphic designer who specializes in lookbooks I mean he is amazing he's asked to do lookbooks for like everybody it's crazy but but to make a lookbook and make it like which is basically just a pdf it's a pdf like kind of it would be a book if it were printed oh i printed some of mine too oh, did by you? the way i would i printed them and i i had the pdf but i would print them too and hand them to people and it's if very they thought impactful. that having like you know like something tangible but yeah. anyways continue yes no no yeah yeah no i mean basically it it's like a portfolio a short portfolio of this is the movie. This is kind of what we want. This is kind of the feel. And, and, and it has to, it has to explain with the project, but it also basically, and the most important thing is it has to like really emotionally engage. And it's, it's surprisingly hard to do. It's like something that you really kind of like, if you're not a graphic designer, I mean, did you design it yourself? I always tell people to like hire. I did it myself and I don't, and, and I wish I, I don't have like a graphic design background, but I got, well, then I take it back because you, you succeed. <laughs> It was, it was, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Like I, I, I don't know, like, but, um, what, what had happened was, uh, I had like, maybe it was even, I actually was in Outfest screenwriting lab or, or I don't know, there was something I was applying. Cause you know, I applied to all the things. You right? were an Outfest screenwriting fellow in like 2018, correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. With this project. Yeah. And I might've 
I might have actually, I don't know if I made it for that, but there was this one night where I needed to submit a lookbook. And like in that night, I had this manic burst of inspiration and did like a really rough copy of it, but it was pretty cool. People responded to it pretty well that saw it. And so then I like dove in and made it even more intense. And then um, I, at some point we made another one that was like a financial lookbook that had a ton of like numbers and decks and, and sort of different things like that, um, that went even more extensive, but it was something that I did myself and I've done them for other projects too. Um, and I'm actually, I have a project right now. I'm like, I need to like start it on, but the graphic, like the visual stuff, like capturing the aura of the film and the visual style of the lookbook is a lot like getting it right um so yeah maybe i should hire someone to be doing this thing right now instead of sitting <laughs> well, on you it, have but... you have a hundred percent success ratio right now so i don't i don't know if uh i don't know if that advice like really but i mean generally speaking, they're so important i mean you know because basically even more than short films now because it used to be you would make a short film and then that would get you the feature and that kind of went away and now it's mostly like it's the script it's the lookbook it's like if you've done a short it doesn't have to be like like what Damien Chazelle did with Whiplash, uh, which was basically the short version. It was like the the, the final scene of Whiplash. I, I remember it. It was like twenty minutes long. It was yeah, a longer like a middle. Short. It was like the third act or, or yeah. something. But it was a pretty long thing, and it was a contained thing. And like I did think about, is there a scene in the film I could do as a short? There was periods I thought about, can I do like um sort of a there was a scene in the film where there's a slow motion row sequence. Thought about trying to shoot just a version of that to kind of use as like a sizzler thing. And I think those all help. I actually cut to um, a fake trailer with, um, we had another actress, Natasha, actually, at some point, and um, she, and I cut this fake trailer using a bunch of footage of hers and sort of trying to get the tone of it and, and whatever and set that out. But again, I don't know how much these things helped or didn't right. help, to be honest. Like, I have no clue. But I do know I had a lot of anxiety for a long time about going into directing because I didn't have a ton of short films under my belt. This is what when I went to college, even when I was fucking 17, 18, walked in, I felt intimidated because it seemed like everyone had made short films and I didn't have that. Um, and I'm not someone you hear some people just make stuff, just make stuff, just practice. Like that is not what I fucking say. Like I, some people that works for you make as much shit as you want. But for me, and we talked about this a minute ago, but it's protecting your energy. Yeah. And I've had people now ask me, do you want to do this commercial, this music video? What about a high end thing? Like, you know, you'll get paid this much money. And I'm like, if I'm spending two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, a month, two months doing this thing, I'm not writing my own thing. I'm not, that's energy taken away. That's exactly I'm all right. in on this. Yeah. So if you're going to do a short film, make sure shit is something you're going to want to marinate on that you're going to devote yourself fully to. Because yeah. if you're just going through the motions, it's not going to it's not going to work, I don't think. You were the co-editor of this. You edited this with um, Nathan Nugent. Tell us about how you constructed and executed these sequences, which are just masterful. Um, so it kind of goes back, like I said before, editing is an extension of writing. And so editing really starts with writing and a lot of, and the same thing, sound editing too. I mean, that is an extension of storytelling. For me, a lot of this sort of things ex existed on the page uh, already in some form. Um, like in, in terms of, I was thinking about the sound, I was writing sort of sound uh, beats into the script, like, you know, sound dips out, this happens, that happens. Like that, a lot of that was in the script. And um, also for me, it really goes back to what are you trying to say? Like what is happening in the story? And for me, the question, the, the real creative question is how do you make an audience who's never wrote or maybe never been this deep into obsession, um, have them know what it feels like to be in the state. And so you want to use everything at your tool as a filmmaker. Like I'm not one for subtlety. You want to use uh, the sound, the visuals, everything to be telling the story because rowing, there's not, there really are not row. There aren't a lot of rowing movies and it's not inherently cinematic sport because you're rowing fucking backwards. You're doing 
doing the same motion over and over. Races are won and lost by like hundreds of a second. Like it is not an inherently cinematic sport. So the question was like, how do you make every sequence feel different? How do you make it feel like um, you're telling some part of the story? And how do you make it visually sonically interesting and like really get into Alex's head? So um, for, for some of those shots, you know, I talked to my DP, Todd. This is also his first film and he's amazing. And I feel oh my like God, it's his first film? With. Because I wanted to talk about the cinematography yeah. and like how you, because some no, of these shots incredible. are just absolutely stunning. They look like very, I mean, you know, and, and I say this as a compliment, they look like very high-end commercials. Like everything looks so beautiful yeah. and so perfect. And the rowing sequences in particular, like I was getting like stressed because I was watching them like, oh my God, I hope they have a waterproof casing for that camera because that is so close to the fucking water. I don't even like, I'm picturing like this airy, like Alexa, like two inches from the water as you're going like 20 miles an hour on the water. I'm like, it was, it was, it was terrifying. No, we had a, <laughs> like I, the visual, I care about visuals, but I've never been attracted to lenses and cameras and things like that the way other people have, which is another thing that sort of set me off from directing for a long time. But, but you don't need you know, to. We brought Todd on board. Yeah. yeah, you don't. And that's the realization. Like when you realize you don't, well, to be a director, you don't have to know everything. You just have to have intention and be able to communicate and good people um, who so know that know shit. enough like like you have yes. you have and somebody you, like todd martin this 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 cinematographer yeah. who obviously knows his shit like um, amazingly he was like, amazing the director of photography like he i just let i didn't even honestly i didn't even know all the names of everyone on the the sort of his crew because he was just so in charge of them like yeah i he was doing his he was hiring and firing people and like i just trust him <laughs> completely and like we had this he's a very he's a hard ass but gets shit done but um he uh like no i was not prepared for when we walked on set the sort of like level of rigs we had we had a camera boat that had like this jib arm that moved up and down and was controlled so you have someone driving the boat and you have someone one like manning the sort of arm and the wow. whatever i don't even remember what the, like a techno crane um we had that on the water so we had that going and then we had um rigs that we built for the boats and we had to fashion the boats in these different rigs and it was it became this game of sort of chess uh chess or, or J- jenga tetris some kind of game <laughs> where be- because like you know, and I started to think about this when I was writing, but like, if Alex is in a four boat, how are we going to get the camera in front of her face? Okay, so we need to get what we'll do. I'll sit her in this seat in the in the in the story. She's going to be sitting here. Mm-hmm. That way, I know when we need to shoot her forward shots, we can have the camera sitting in this seat. Mm-hmm. We can be in an eight boat, mm-hmm. and we can have the. Pe- it looks like it's we're in a four, mm-hmm. and there's three people behind her, and then there's Alex, and then there's Todd with the camera, then there's me, there's a microphone, do whatever. Then you have two people sitting behind us, essentially being the training wheels for the boat and just holding their oars out, holding it steady so that it's relatively whatever. Like that's kind of the stuff that we had to do. And then when you flip around and get the other angle, you got to like reverse it. So we had different boats. We have different rigs. We have different camera boats, like all this stuff sort of coming together. And Todd and I, every day we would go through very extensively and shot list what we needed to get. And you don't have a lot of time on the water, like especially that final race, which we shot over three days. Like some of those shots, there's just literally one. If you go in one frame in either direction, the shot is unusable. (laughs) And there's only exactly, (laughs) there's exactly one take of like, we need to establish that Alex is approaching uh, Highsmith. So we need Highsmith looking over to her right and seeing her. There's one shot of that and it's in the fucking movie. And like when we get that done... We 
got done shooting, but we had, me and Todd, we would sit down and like, okay, what do we need? We need to see the boat come up here. Great. And we would just have this shot list and check it off. And you have to have, you, we have to be like, okay, I think we got it and move the fuck on and maybe get one take of it because it was so fucking demanding. So in some ways we even started the editing of some of the sequences uh, in camera just out of necessity. It's like, we don't have time to get fucking coverage. Right. Like, we, don't, we don't have, the, like, this isn't a David Fincher fucking film. Like we have no money, no time. And like, it's fucking winter and the city opened the dam and the boats are getting sucked down and like there's lightning and like the rain's coming and it's free like it's just oh my god all this shit's happening and this was shot in canada um, like around toronto in canada or is that yeah about two hours outside of toronto a town called peterborough um and we shot right like literally the we, water week was our first week as a director my first week was water week so that was like a, a fucking wait baptism. what is water week like we all we shot everything on the water oh, like, oh, oh i get it i get sequence. it i get it okay yeah yeah. yeah 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 and we had to because it was winter and the very next week it was snowing there <laughs> um so isabel and, and the city also t- drained the fucking dam like the last day of shooting they opened the they opened the thing to drain the fucking river and they didn't tell us they were doing it so this water that was still these boats are supposed to be lined up supposed to be five boats though they're getting sucked down the goddamn river and like we have so then you have five boats that are supposed to be lined up lined up then you have the camera boat the sound boat the taxi boat the safety boat the light boat uh there's probably another boat i'm missing a boat or two i feel like there was 12 boats oh my god you know lauren you know you're and i have i have a fucking i have like two walkie talkies going because i gotta direct everyone i got a fucking megaphone and then that goes out because i gotta scream at people like i'm running around like a fucking mad woman and then if anyone and these actresses are going backwards it's nighttime it's fucking freezing their hands are frozen at one point they're wearing masks which doesn't even read in the in the film really but like if they fall over those boats are incredible easy to tip like yeah incredibly fucking easy and i was like oh my god please none of you fucking fall over none of you fucking better fall over <laughs> because if any one of them had fallen in the water we would have been completely fucked the amount of time to reset to dry off to get someone warm to take them out take them back to base camp all of that would have taken so long yeah. that we would have been we would have lost hours yeah. and like that's it, it was a nightmare i just want to um, say but, your, your hero quentin tarantino's <laughs> first film takes place in a room with a bunch of guys yelling yeah. at each other for like two hours like, you know, like, they're not, like, you, you, like, no, my first film is going to be on the water in the winter, like, it's, it's, like, at a grueling action, like, like, sequences on the water with these yeah, people, like. you know, you gotta go big or go home, gotta have an ambitious <laughs> first film. You certainly um, don't set the bar low for yourself, but, okay, so did you shoot this, I guess, during COVID? No, and, uh, fuck, because I, I mentioned we had this other actress, Natasha, right, when we got greenlit, she was like, I can't do the film, I got cast this other thing, and I was like, well, fuck my life, because it had, this at that point, been so many false starts and stops, right. and we actually had this conversation, should we wait until March 2020 to shoot the film? Oh, my God. When she'll be available, <gasps> and I remember saying, no, we can't. We got to go now. We don't know what's going to happen. I didn't think the fucking pandemic was going to happen. Yeah, but nobody we, thought no, a pandemic so we went, was going Yeah, we scrambled and we did casting. We found um, Isabel and like she had to scramble. She had like six weeks to, to learn to row. She was rowing like four hours a day plus t- doing additional training after that on her own like uh, with her trainer and, and whatever. Like she gained a ton of muscle for this if, part. If she's she not nominated, her own rowing. if she's not nominated for something, there is no justice in the world so, because this this performance like wh- whatever you want to say about th- the rest of the film and whatever however like the cinematography and all this other amazing shit her performance 
at the center of this film because she's in every scene. I mean, she there's no scene yes. that she's not in. Literally, this is literally yeah. her story from front to back, and she is as 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 kind of you are in this interview, very very driven. She sets the goal. And she basically makes herself, like, pushes herself to the absolute limit physically, emotionally, psychologically. Um, And the performance, and especially in the last third of this film, is like, it's almost like, you know, you're watching it through your fingers. It's like, because this has been, like, your film, first of all, it has an insane Rotten Tomatoes score. It's like in the 90s. I don't even remember what it is, but it's like 98 or 93 or 95, and it's like crazy, and all the critics love it. Um, and it won. The, it won Tribeca, right? It won the the jury award at Tribeca for narrative film. So, not in, yeah, we won not that inauspicious. As cinematography, yeah, and uh, and the acting as well. So insane. Yeah, I mean, Isabel, she she was incredible, and she has such a control of her craft. Like at the point, because again, the first time director, the first week we were shooting on the water, so most of it was just I need you to look this way, look, and like she just would nail it, bring emotion to scenes, whatever. Remember the first time we shot a dialogue scene, how nervous I was. She fucking brought it, and then by the end of the shoot, I knew. What, her, what she was capable of to, to such extent. And it's scary because you basically, these days, it's like we cast her off of um, a video audition. She wrote me a letter and then we had like a meeting and that was really it. Um, so you're going into it and me, of course, like stalking her and reading and watching her stuff. But um, you're going into it with this lot of like faith. And I'm sure she felt the same way about me because like, I don't, I haven't, what have I fucking done? And, um, but I can't but imagine she end, gets scripts the, like this very often, though. No, this has to be a fucking... Look, I don't say this. I would say this about any script, even if I hadn't written <laughs> it. But this is like the dream fucking role for a young actress. Because like yeah. you said, she is in every fucking frame. It is, it is her story. You, there is no two-hander here. No. Like, There's other great performances in the film, but like this is Isabel's movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's fucking incredible. And I do really... I'm going to be very upset if she doesn't get some kind of recognition I, in some kind I of way. I will be upset with you. Like the last scene, some of the last scenes we shot were in the bathroom, the sort of breakup scenes. And um, I had written this scene where they break up and like uh, Danny, her, her girlfriend says this line. And um, well, I guess I spoiled that breakup. But uh, the, the Danny says, a, uh, says this line like, uh, and, and I had it in my head. Like I wrote this thing where Isabel, I wanted her to reply, like sort of laugh and have a tear on her cheek. Like that's how I saw it in my head for two years having had the script. Right. And I knew her well enough and knew that she had this control of her craft. And I was like, Isabel, when you when you have this moment right here, I want you to laugh. I want there to be a fucking tear on your cheek. She did four takes of it. Every single time fucking that's nailed amazing. it. And it's in the film. And you can see it. And that was a very specific point in direction um, I gave her too. And I think her too, it was just an incredible experience working with her because it's fun. Like I think you have a lot of trepidation as a director. You don't want to like criticize an actor. You don't want to whatever. Maybe they bring something to the performance and it's just totally wrong. It's not bad. It's just wrong. Like, it's the wrong choice. Like I saw, yeah, yeah. But I love like being able to have that collaboration. Like there's a scene with her sitting in the tub. Like she initially did the scene kind of more emotional, more um, whatever. And I was like, no, 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 this is a scene. This is your moment where you're fucking catatonic. Like, I don't want you're just fucking empty here. You are done. And being able to have that sort of trust to be able to say like, no, what you like, this isn't what I needed here. This is what I need. And her just being like, fuck yeah. And then going in and doing it. Like, that's so incredible to have that. Like, like I'm getting chills just talking about it. Like that working experience. Like, I'm so eager to get back to being able to do that with, um, with talent again and being able to go to that sort of like yeah. depth of, of like collaboration and um, sort of pushing each other in a way that is very healthy and like, I don't know, creative and, and magic. It's, it's great. It's amazing. I, and I can't wait to see what you do next. I mean, do you have anything that you like, can talk about that you're doing next? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what's for sure going to be next, but my next thing that I have written that's kind of the most mature that I hope is going to be next, I wrote a les- lesbian sex comedy, uh, which just sounds like, again, it's like very different than than uh, The Novice, I- but like it's... I. I uh, wrote it in real time during a breakup, and uh, it sort of imagines my very LA, very cliche shell, uh, self, like shepherding <laughs> my my pre LA, pre out self, but Asia up to thirty through LA's lesbian dating scene, um, and so taking like all the things that I've learned in years and compressing it down, and sort of wanting to do like this uh, like a, a a movie that feels like a like a like a super bad but with thirty year olds, you know, like I want, oh, that but it like feels so like a fucking. Fun. F- film you know and i think right now with the state of the world like i want to do something fun um i want to and it may not be that i mean i don't know we'll see but um i whatever i do next it's gotta you know like i said it's just to say something i think about me and like the stories that i want to tell and my tastes are so fucking varied i mean like so i don't want to get doing a lot of i've been sent a lot of scripts that are sort of these dark brooding women things and i'm like okay i get it but you know, I, there's more than that that I have that I want to tell. So I don't want to. Yeah, I would. Anyways, I would. We'll I would actually love to see you do an action movie. To be honest, like having seen the novice, because like if you did a female centric action movie, I can see that so easily because the rowing scenes and the intensity of it. I mean, you're on the edge of your seat. It's basically action. Like you, you basically directed action sequences in this tiny independent movie. Yeah, I mean. There's a couple of things that, you know, I, I can't, you know, all this shit, this town, like everything is so, the chances of anything happening is like one in a fucking billion. It's roulette chips. But there's a couple of things, yeah, there's a couple of things that I am very excited by that are kind of more action oriented. And like, I am into those stories and into these like um, female characters and gay shit and all that. And not because I think we need like raw, raw <laughs> sisterhood and gay people, oppression. No, it's because like, that's just what I want to fucking see. And like, yeah. I, and like in the novice, there's the queer story, but there's not a queer story. Like there's no point of it. Like I just want people who are people. And that's why I think, and this is something I actually said after the screening at Alphas, but why I think diversity is so important is that everyone tells their own fucking story. Like I wrote a film, like everyone's like, Oh, it's a film with 95% women. And there's a queer story. And it's diverse. I'm like, well, I'm a woman. I was a rower and I'm fucking gay. So I wrote what I knew (laughs) and I'm not the person to tell the story of a black trans woman in Kansas. Like there's a woman out there to tell that fucking story. Like I don't think, and I think we're also in the stage with um, queer entertainment where we're so hungry for diversity and inclusion that we are in the stage where we expect every queer story to sort of fit every one of everything has to be, and everyone has to be represented. And I'm like, no, fuck that. Like, let's get really niche queer stories, very specific ones, like fucking redneck uh, queers. Let's get the black uh, trans experience. Let's get the fucking gay dudes running off to wherever and getting married. Like, I want all the fucking stories. Like, we don't need every story to fill everything. But in order to get to that point, we need to like get more creators in at the ground level, more diverse voices in at the ground level, so we can have all these niche sort of movies and experiences and it can feel like you know like a fucking straight movie doesn't have to be everything for everyone no right? it doesn't you know i don't we're we're, I don't know. we're I mean, under that yoke because we are trying to do stuff that isn't that four quadrant mostly white mostly straight kind of audience we're doing something else mm-hmm. we're doing something more personal we do need more movies from like you know black 
trans people in the heartland. You know, we do need more movies like about like virtually everybody, people of color, trans women, lesbians, even gay men. Yeah, but I don't even, it's like, I don't even care. I I wanted those gay specific stories I want to tell, but there's also like, I just want characters who are fucking gay. And I I said this too at Office in some interview I talked to someone about, but I was like, I want to see a film where there's like a fucking Marvel movie where there's a sexy, super macho superhero dude goes home to his husband and it's not a fucking thing. Like, that's what I want. I don't need, it doesn't need to be a gay fucking movie. Like, it's not, when you have that and there's a, a relationship you don't call it um a straight movie or a straight romantic movie like it's just a character who is straight and who has this woman that he comes home to like we're not there yet and uh I, you know i don't know when or if we ever will be but like those things to me i think are are so important i don't know i know i um, you are I I just fell in love with you in this interview because like you've say, you've literally said things that I've been saying for years and I totally I totally agree I think that's absolutely right and I can't wait to see what I am hoping is your lesbian action movie because like I want to see like like do you ever see Long Kiss Goodnight she's not a lesbian in that but Gina Davis like kicks all sorts of ass in that movie and I'm just like if it were just like if you could have just made her a lesbian this would be the best yeah. movie ever made. No, there's so much, there's so much good shit that I, I don't know. And I still think sexuality, it's like not even, I, I mean, I, like Gen, Gen Z, 18 year olds, I don't even think like let the words lesbian and whatever aren't even going to exist. And at some point, everyone's just dating whoever, yeah. but like also too, when sexuality is more fluid, you can have these characters who are seducing men, seducing women. Like, I don't, it's just fucking hotter. Like it's fun being gay. I mean, there's parts of it that fucking suck, like obviously, but when you're in a good place, we're in a good community. When you're in a place like Los Angeles or whatever, when you can live your life, or Paris, it's fucking fun. Yeah, or Paris, <laughs> like you know, like. And I wish people knew that. So I don't know. I want to see more stories like, like that where where I see the fun of it. I don't need to hear hear. We need the oppressions, but like I want fucking yeah yeah the action. Where's the action? There was a tweet that I read that I fucking love that's like, we need a, a, a diehard with Charlie Theron saving her wife. And Charlie Theron replied, sign me up. And I'm like, where is that oh fucking my God. movie? Someone do, do it. Do that right now. No, you know? get her on the phone. You get her on the phone and say, we're going to write an action movie where you're a lesbian. And I will, I trust me, me and almost everyone I know will be first in line to see that movie. And also, uh, fuck, what was I going to say? Oh my God. I had a, I had a comment. Oh, I've been watching all these like 90s action movies recently because um, me and my friend during the pandemic had a 1997 movie night and every week we would watch a movie from 1997 oh and we recently, recently graduated to 1998. So then I've been watching and I've been on the airplane a lot. And just And there's such, something about like pre-9-11 movies that I really think we need to get back to right now that... I don't know. Like I'm, I'm craving that the sort of funness of it, mm-hmm. um, the the real explosions, the uh, the I don't know, and I don't know if that's ever gonna. Well, happen. Well, it's also pre CG. Um, I mean, like what you're talking about, like like I mean, the last Boy Scout was before that, but like you're talking about kind of the apex of the Tony Scott kind of like slick, mm-hmm. slick, slick action movie. Kind of, I mean, what were the favorites that you've seen? I mean, I remember Ricochet. That was a little earlier. I remember. Um, what are some of the good well, action movies? The ones movies I've watched recently, Lethal Weapon. That's not from '90s, but I watched it on the airplane. It's '87. Like, well, yeah, pretty fucking. It's a fun. good. It's a yeah, great movie. Uh, it's a great movie, and two is good too. Armageddon, which is ridiculous, but like it was fun. <laughs> uh, the Rock, um, like a contact, contact uh, the Rock. Um, what else? Contact, wait, Jodie Foster. Jo- the, that's not an action movie. It's not an action movie, but it's like there's something about these like late '90s films too that I think there's. It's a gorgeous movie. Even Titanic. Yeah. The scope of them, the the sort of um, I'm trying to think what were the other night we watched the Postman again. That movie, oh I'm God. like, I don't know about that movie, mm. but it did something. It fucking <laughs> did something. You know, it did. You don't no, see them no, like that. You're anymore. right. You're right. No, that okay. Look, <laughs> I do not like the Postman. 
um, it is, I think, unwatchable. But I will say, <laughs> yeah. I will say, it, it it has an epic scope and ambition that I really admire. I admire the fact that it really went for it. It was like three hours long or something. It's like it's like really. Yeah, and it, it was too long. Tom Petty's in it. I love Tom Petty in it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's but, like there's yeah. there's a, there's a scope. And, uh, and an ambition to those movies that are, that is really, 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 like, appealing and, you know, and I think that with CG, like, we, th- I think there was an over-reliance of CG in the 2000s and then... Because um, it was, like, a cool new toy. Yeah. It was, like, the 3D that happened in the early 2010s and, yeah. uh, you know... But we're getting back excited, to it now. So. I think we're getting back to it, aren't we? If we get back to the theater, I don't know if this COVID ever ends. <laughs> Seems like it's not going to. I, I hope it's... I, I figure it's it will. Depressing. I don't think the theater's going anywhere, I, I hope, I, because I will be very, very, very sad if it does. But, um, you know, I think people are starving for that kind of a theatrical experience. And I think that if studios especially, like, I think there are a lot of people at studios who think exactly like you do, which is, like, we got to get back to, like, you know, cliffhanger. You know, we got to get back to, like, yeah. you know... Uh, long kiss good night. We got to get back to like lethal lethal weapon at least one and two, um, you know. And and uh, I hope that we do. Yeah, and I, I'm also trying to accept like um, I think the thing with for a long time you could either make a movie that was like a two million dollar movie or two hundred million dollar movie. Yeah. And now with streamers, like this this marketplace for the sort of fifteen to forty million has come back, which is nice. But I think we also have to accept something myself as a filmmaker too is like not all stories need to necessarily be told on the big screen. I think yeah. films do, but I think the problem is the audience has been sort of duped so many times and the cost and the whatever yeah. and the, you got to make it an experience like a ride. And, um, and also I have to remind myself, like this is something I just realized recently, like the film that is the reason I'm sitting here talking to you right now, kill bill. I saw that playing on a fucking DVD player on a Sunday afternoon in bright daylight in my living room. Like, so just because a movie isn't in the sort of best, I mean, you want the ideal scenario, but a good movie is going to function if you're staring at it on your fucking phone, yeah. if you're you're in a shitty whatever, like that's the beauty of storytelling, like it turns into those things. Yeah. So we have to sort of remind ourselves not to get so sort of negative about this idea, like, oh, not every film's going to go to a theater, but... Some some things that I'm writing, I'm like, I would be okay with this going straight to sort of streamer because I think like it's a story that could be told there. There's things mm-hmm. that I'm working on that I like I really fucking want this to be in a theater. Um, and I would be really heartbroken if it never got to have that chance. So uh, it goes back to my favorite word, which is nuance. Um, I think we lack that in society and filmmaking and our lives. We just need some fucking nuance the way that we approach things and how we do things. So, Did you ever get to see Kill Bill on the big screen, though? No, I've never seen it on the, bill, the big screen. I, I saw the can cut at uh, the New Beverly, which Quentin Tarantino owns. He he showed the – which is mm-hmm. the whole – both movies – like three and a half hours with with like I think there's one extra scene in it and and they took out Uma Thurman in the car at the top of two saying like she's gonna you know introducing it like you know so basically it's okay. one movie with an intermission and it's like on, especially on the big screen uh, and especially without uh, it's unrated so the, the the black and white stuff at the end of part one where she's killing the 88s is never black and white it's always color. Um, and it's, oh, right. yeah, I forgot. and they it's did that. really like, if you can find it because it does run here in LA, next time you're in LA, look up the new Beverly every once in a while it runs and has burned in French subtitles. Um, because it played, they played only it can, I think, I think Quentin Tarantino owns this print, but do see it on the big screen. And it is kind of an overwhelming experience. Speaking of French subtitles, actually, uh, two days from now, Nom's playing at Deauville, which is a French film festival. Um, very excited by. Oh so my we God, will that's have, great. we will have a 
a screening and I don't know that they're like, the, it's a, uh, you're gonna have to give an introduction. It's 1500 seats. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm going to do it in French. We'll see how it goes. Oh my uh, goodness. You know, but it's got the, the subtitles in French, which is expensive <laughs> too. And that's the thing about making films. It's like all this shit adds up. Like you think you're done with the film when you, when you're picture locked, but you're not, it just drags on for fucking ever. Never, you're never, um, you're never done. It's like, it's you're, yeah. you're going to be, with this for a while but lauren thank you so much for talking and i can honestly say like whatever you make next i'm gonna see because like it's very rare you talk to a filmmaker with such a sense of self-possession and drive and i really 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 want to see what your next film is going to be and i know i'm not alone thank you i do too i'm very curious so uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out hopefully something i'm like hopefully i don't have to go back to sound career i've had a couple people be like you're not gonna have to and i'm like okay <laughs> this person told me this Probably it's not going to happen, but knock on wood right now. So, uh, yeah. And thank you for this conversation. Lauren Hathaway, thank you so much. for. And The Novice is going to be released uh, in, in North America by IFC Films on December 17th. I look forward to some nominations, especially for Isabel, because, oh, my God, that yes. performance. It's amazing. Yeah, fingers crossed for her. She's great. Lauren, thank you so much. And that was part one of Highlights from Outfest. Next week, I get to talk to Nathan Hale Williams about his film All Boys Aren't Blue and Q. Allen Broca and Daryl Stevens about their new streaming series follow-up to their 2006 festival hit, Boy Culture. This has been the Outcast presented by Outfest. For more, go to outfest.org slash theoutcast. The Outcast is executive produced by me, David Kittredge, Ismail El-Sharif, and Alan Koningsberg. Special thanks to Damien Navarro, Daniel Crook, and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. Mixed by Craig Lawrence-Smith. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBTQ voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening, and catch you next time. <laughs>